0: Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to Hebrews and the second chapter, Hebrews chapter 2. So we continue on our series here in the Advent, the perfect Christ. Uh, We look forward to uh, talking about the perfect man. Then tonight, we're going to be looking at, during our Christmas uh, Eve service, we're going to have a a short devotional on... uh, the Christmas and the incarnation from the angels perspective so um, this is page uh, 200 excuse me page let me get to page 1001 if you are using one of the Bibles provided for you where Hebrews chapter 2 is found before I pray and ask God's blessing this time I did want to recognize I was told uh, let's see here I'm seeing there the syrenes are here where's Caitlin is Caitlin here with you is Caitlin here with you Okay, she's sleeping down there. My preaching has already had good effects upon her. Okay, so, um, but uh, we are so grateful that uh, the Syrian's new child, Caitlin, is here. And we're grateful for Abigail to be here too still. So, but, uh, so make sure you congratulate them. Uh, anytime God grants life, it is to be celebrated. And we can rejoice with them in that. Father, Lord, as we now go and look at Your Word for the next few minutes here, I, I don't want to do so without asking for Your Spirit to to guide us right now. Guide the words that I choose to say and uh, things that I want to bring up. I pray that they be led by Your Spirit, because God. What all of us here need is we need for your spirit to use your word to change our lives. That's what we need. And so that's what we're asking for. And so I pray right now that you'd remove distractions. We have an enemy that wants to destroy us. He doesn't want to just trip us up. He doesn't want to just uh, make life difficult for us. He wants to destroy us. And we need to be cognizant of that all the time because little distractions away from what we're supposed to be thinking about. We need to see where that comes from. It comes from our sin nature and it comes from the enemy who's seeking to destroy us. So we are praying to the one. We're told in the scriptures it says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so we're praying right now that you would remove distractions from us and that we'd be able to focus in on you and your word and that you would receive the glory and honor that you so richly deserve. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Um, In the bulletin, Philippians was listed as a scripture reading text, and then Jane had printed them, and I think she was pretty much folding the last one when I run into the office and I say, I changed the scripture reading text for for Sunday. She offered to reprint them. I said, absolutely not. We're not going to waste it for that. But I thought reading chapter one of Hebrews would be a great setup for the message this morning. And so we read through, you heard it read, Uh, Pastor Mike read, Hebrews chapter 1 for us and we're going to be looking in chapter 2 but let me remind you a little bit about what you had heard read to you in chapter 1 the father has established the supremacy and the deity of Jesus Christ Okay, and so as you look in chapter 1 what you can see throughout there is that the supremacy and deity of Jesus Christ is being put on display now we do not know the human author of Hebrews there are some different uh, theories on who that could have been, but it is a book that we do not know for sure who wrote it uh, some people say Paul, some people say Apollos, some people even say Luke that it was the third book in a trilogy rather than just a two part series from the Gospel in the book of Acts we don't know nonetheless all we know is that the human author here is used by the Spirit of God to convey some very important truth to us and in chapter one we see this idea of Jesus being above all things and God he says in there's a contrast is given to how God treats the Son, Jesus Christ, and angels. First of all, in chapter one verse six, we see that uh, uh, Jesus is higher than angels, okay He's above the angels and, uh, in, in his establishment. There's a hierarchy in the heavens, which I'll refer to later on, that uh, we have the, the angelic host are actually a creator, a creation above uh, humans in so many ways. And, but Jesus is above that. And so we see different examples of that he says well, which of the angels did I say this to we see that in verse 8 of chapter 1 that Jesus is called God but the, of the throne he the father says your throne O oh God is forever established and so he's called God in in verse 10 of chapter 1 Jesus is called Lord You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth from the beginning. And so that brings in also in verse 10 that Jesus is credited with creation. We see in verses 11 and 12 that Jesus is eternal. It says that uh, um, uh, your years will have no end in verse 12. And then in verse 13, we see that he is sovereignly supreme. He is above all things. He has made all things uh, uh, under his feet, under Jesus' feet. And so, uh, we need to have that background, understanding what's going on in chapter 1 of Hebrews if we're going to look into what chapter 2 has for us today as we look at Christ, the perfect man. And so we see the supremacy and the deity of God, of Jesus Christ rather, being being uh, argued for and proven in chapter 1. Now if you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, it says this, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Okay. Now, the word therefore is very important because it connects this section to the section before it. And so when we look at that, we need to say, okay, what's going on in the section before? That's the reason why I gave you this brief history of chapter 1. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ. And it says we must pay close, play close, close attention to what we have heard. What is it that we've heard? We'll look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. Okay? And so it goes on to tell what he did there. Halfway through verse three, it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay? And so... What things have we heard? What we're talking about here is the gospel message, the message of salvation that was made possible through Jesus Christ. So in chapter 2 and verse 1, we see this idea of therefore. It's connected to the previous text before, and he's talking about the gospel message. But notice what he says there. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1 again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it lest we drift away from it. We have to pay close attention to the gospel message. Much of what I'm going to share with you this morning is not going to be new to many of you. Maybe a couple of you will be, but I dare say most of you will have heard what I'm going to tell you in this message this morning. You've heard it before. But as I contemplated on what we should talk about on this Christmas Eve service, and looking at the perfect man of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, that's what that word means, incarnation, when he became flesh, Jesus became flesh, incarnate. As we look at this today, I'm going to remind you of this, what you've probably heard before, because it's so important that you and I do not drift away from it. The fact that the command is there proves that it's possible, Okay. It's possible for us to drift away. Now, I'm not talking about losing salvation here. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is moving away from appreciating the gospel message. Now, it is possible because the the author of Hebrews does say this, and we don't have time to get into it in this message, but it is possible to drift so far away that there's apostasy. And what that proves, it doesn't prove that they lost their salvation. It proves, like John wrote, they went away from us because they never were of us. And so it proves that there never was true, genuine conversion or true, genuine salvation. Much like the parable of the sower, someone can show signs of fruit for a time. And people can see, man, that must be a follower of Christ. But in the end... We will be tested, and in the end, our fruits will reveal whether or not we truly had faith or not, and this is like that first warning sign here, that first thing. If we start drifting away from this, those of us who are true believers in Christ, this should be like warning signs and sirens going off in our head and saying, wait a minute here. I am drifting away from this, and I need to stop, and I need to go back, and I need to appreciate what we have heard before. Basically, what he's saying there is he's saying, don't get bored. Don't get bored with salvation. Now, the sad reality is that we have to fight hard against becoming bored with the idea of salvation. Like many Christmas gifts that have been earnestly desired and then ignored only a short time later, we are tempted to take salvation for granted and forget the wonderful message of the gospel of Christ. And so my message this morning is that we need to be careful not to drift away. We need to remember some things this morning here. And what I want to do is I want to remind you of these things. The author puts it this way. He says, as I said before, don't drift away. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the idea of drifting. Obviously, the the idea of fishing came to my mind. As a kid, I would go fishing with my dad. He had a, I had a small, uh, little boat, and uh, we would go out and most most often Lake St. Clair in Michigan. There, and, and we would do uh, uh, fishing, and, and you know, I I just went along for, you know, the the experience of it or whatever. Spend time with my dad. I, I really didn't enjoy fishing a whole lot. Um, But uh, I did it anyway And we would sit in the boat And I think I went uh, Mainly hoping that my dad would let me drive the boat Um, And we had a 14 foot aluminum boat uh, Had a 20 horse motor on the back And so for a 14 foot aluminum boat That 20 horse motor could move that boat pretty good And so uh, I was, was just hoping my dad would let me drive the boat It didn't happen too often But it happened enough where it made me want to go back And I remember sitting there, and, and, you know, we'd get up at, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, ungodly hour of the day, you know, of, you know, like, you know, four in the morning or something like that, and we'd be out there, and some of you were like, yeah, that's me every day. Yeah, good for you. So, um it, we would be out there and and it would be dark, and we 'd be there and and then you know I would get hungry and so I'd eat my lunch and that brought me to about you know six a m <laughs> and so so then i 'd have lunch for the rest of the day and I remember just sitting there and um sometimes he would throw an anchor over or sometimes we would just drift and I remember as we would be drifting sometimes and i 'd have my line out there and and you know just hoping for some type of action of this so-called sport and uh just sitting there and then I would look up and I would see the lighthouse there or, or the coast guard station I remember that and sitting there and then just kind of looking around and everything and then I'd look up to see the lighthouse or the coast guard station again and I'm like where'd I go and I look over and it's like way over there I'm like this is amazing and fishing land moves okay and moves away from you because that's what it felt like, right? It felt like I wasn't moving at all. And we all know that I was the one who moved. But, you know, it was this idea. I thought, well, I, I, I'm just sitting here. I don't feel an emotion. I don't feel like I'm moving. But when I looked up, when it was brought to my attention, all of a sudden I was so far away from where we had started. And I think that's kind of the idea that's, that's happening here is just saying, don't drift away from this. You're going to move away from appreciating the gospel much faster and much further than you think is possible. And so the gospel is only possible because of the incarnate work of Jesus Christ. Now, this work is complex and beautiful, and there's so many implications surrounding the incarnation. I don't have time to fully unpack it, but at the same time, I don't fully understand it either because it is so complex. However, as I'm still learning about the nuances of the incarnation, I do want to remind you of a few basic ideas surrounding the, the, the incarnation so we don't drift away from it. So I have three realities that are infused in the incarnation that I'd like to share with you this morning. The first is this is that the incarnation meant humiliation for Jesus. Okay? I mean, we're celebrating today and tomorrow. We're celebrating this baby born, this this cute baby, and and being born, and we see all the pictures and, and Laid in mangers, a wonderful story, and Joseph and Mary—they were so happy. I mean, just because—I mean, you know, let's just take away for for a minute the the whole God incarnate thing. Just parents having children born—it it, it, it just brings joy. We have a family that's, in, that's celebrating this right now. Okay, there's a, there's another child that's been given to them that they have a the responsibility to raise and teach and and bring up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's a wonderful responsibility and we just love this and so there's this great joy here and this is what we're celebrating here and and we sing songs about it and it's wonderful and we should celebrate it but we have to remember here that the incarnation meant humiliation for Jesus okay I mean this was something that he chose to do before the foundations of the earth in the wisdom of the father together they said this is what we will do it says this in, in verse um, 5 of chapter 2. Let me direct your attention to it. It says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he begins to quote, this is Psalm 8. He says, What is man that, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and with honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But, look at verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone here. And so what we have here is that we have the, the author of Hebrews reminding us the order of creation, of that angels are higher than humans. And so becoming an angel, but if Jesus would have chosen to become an angel, that still would have been a condescending work on his part. But yet he bypassed the, the whole angelic realm and he became a human. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 2, it says this therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And so he was he became man in every respect. And so this is one of those 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 mysteries of the incarnation that that will just mess with your mind if you start really going after this. And do it. Meditate on this. Think about this. How can this be possible? Later on in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews was very clear to say that when Jesus became man, he was in every point that we are yet without sin. And so it was. he was in, in made like a man in every respect except for man. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because sin is not a, a necessary component to be human. When Adam and Eve were first created, they weren't created with sin. They were created with the capacity to sin. Now, that's the difference between God and man, is God cannot sin, but in every respect, and all the limitations that that we experience, the feelings, the, the emotions, the idea of rejection, the idea of hunger, the idea of being tired, the idea of frustration, the idea of all these things that you experience on a daily, on a weekly basis. Jesus understood this because the incarnation meant humiliation for him. He didn't become an angel, which is more powerful than humans. No, he became a human. So... He had to become something beneath his dignity. Have you thought about that? That the incarnation, when we celebrate Jesus coming as a baby, that was him going way beneath him. If you were to show up at work on Monday or Tuesday or whenever the next day you work is, and for some of you, maybe you work in an office situation or whatever, Now, let's say you walk in and the boss says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Your supervisor tells you that and you say, sure, no problem. He says, I got a new project for you. You're like, great. What's this going to be? Is this going to be a promotion? Is this going to be lots of responsibility? And he hands you a broom and he says, man, there's a lot lot of trash in the parking lot. Can you go sweep that up for me? Now, some of you would have a hard time with that. Then some of you, it would be just pride. But others, it would be, you know, you'd be thinking fiscally about it. You'd be like, okay, I make X amount of money, you know, per hour. Is it really in the best interest of the company to spend that money on me to sweep the the, the lot? The point is, is that sometimes when we're asked to do something that we think is beneath us or beneath what would be the most uh, uh, opportune use of our time, we balk at that. But Jesus didn't. The incarnation meant that he did something. He became something beneath his dignity. And he did it with joy. With joy. And so the incarnation meant humiliation. It also meant not only that he had become something beneath his dignity, but he had to suffer and die at the hands of those he created. Okay, this is what this meant. When Jesus, and Jesus knew this when he became the, the, the incarnate baby. He understood that this meant that he was born to die, as one of the popular Christmas songs says, that he was born to come and live a life, a life of, of perfect obedience, and so that then he would die at the hands of the people that he created, the very people that he formed, the very people that he gave life to, the very people that he established for, for the foundations of the earth, according to Ephesians chapter 1. These very people, he said, I will let you kill me. This is what the incarnation meant. It meant absolute humiliation for the one who deserved all glory and all honor. But yet as this Christmas, as we're celebrating this, we're just going to remember that he accepted humility. You see, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity did not deserve to die. And yet, that was the point of the incarnation. And so we celebrate the birth of Christ this season, and rightfully so. We should celebrate it, but we're celebrating not just a holy birth and life, but a cruel and unjust death as well. Now remember... The author is saying, don't drift away. Remember the things that you've heard, okay? Now, as I'm telling you this about the humiliation of Christ on Christmas, none of you here are saying, I have never heard this before. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to cause you to remember this so that you don't drift away from appreciating it, so you understand how important it is on this Christmas day and this Christmas celebration. So don't drift away from appreciating the humiliation that Jesus had willfully and that he joyfully endured. Don't drift away from that. So when you life seems terrible. Like you're getting the raw end of the deal on something. I want you to go back to the humiliation of Jesus Christ and say, yes, you understand what this is about. You understand what it is like to not get what you deserve, or you understand this. Because that is one of the reasons why he came to earth is so that he could suffer and die to give us hope. But, secondly... The incarnation resulted in glory for Jesus. This is a good part. You see, the first part, I always feel bad about it. I feel like, you know, man, Jesus should not have had to go through that humiliation. Jesus should not have had to die. Jesus should not have done that, but yet he did. But the one of the byproducts of that is that he then receives the glory that he deserves. And so my point in bringing this up this morning, I'm going to show you two from Hebrews 2, but my point in bringing this up to you this morning is that don't drift away from the ultimate purpose of your life is to bring glory glory to Jesus Christ that is why you are breathing this very second it is to bring glory to Jesus Christ that is why you have the job that you have that is why you have the family that you have that is why you have the giftedness and the skill sets that you have it is to bring glory to Jesus Christ because he deserves it does he not That is why you are here. And so this Christmas season, as we are celebrating the birth of Christ, we understand that what this brings is it brings glory to him. And we saw a couple places where we saw this at in verse nine, it says that he was uh, crowned with glory and honor because of the death, the suffering of death. And so this Christmas season, this Christmas Eve, understand that Jesus deserves all glory and praise and honor. Don't drift away from that. Don't drift away from the idea that you are here on this planet to bring him that glory. Don't drift away from that in the pursuit of a career or in the pursuit of appreciation or in the pursuit of acceptance or the pursuit of life goals or in the pursuit of anything else. Don't drift away from the purpose of that you are here to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ because he deserves it all. So the incarnation results in glory for Jesus Christ Jesus deserves to receive glory for his incarnation. So treat him as he deserves. Did you notice, look in verse 11 here. It says, for, verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom by all things consist, okay? We're talking about Jesus here. It was fitting that he for whom, for whom, and by whom all things consist, Exists, excuse me, in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Look at this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have origin. Look at this. That is why, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The word there, brothers, means brothers or sisters. This means siblings. It's a, it's a generic term for siblings there. There we see Jesus saying... He is not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. That's astounding. Because I'm a sinner, okay? I'm someone who at times has been ashamed of Jesus, right? And you have as well. And yet he's not ashamed to be called our brothers, our sister. Not ashamed to, to call us his brother or sister. It's astounding to me. Too many of us feel like Jesus' biological half-siblings. They were ashamed of him at first. In fact, Mark actually tells us in Mark's gospel that at one point, while Jesus was in his earthly ministry, his siblings came out, and they told the crowds, he, this guy, our brother Jesus, is out of his mind. He's crazy. Now, that, that, that's shocking to me in some ways because, I mean, it took 30, of them, some of them at least, 30 years to believe in Jesus. Now, how is this possible? I mean, they saw the miracles that he did or at least they heard about them. I mean, what brother does not hear about his other brother's, you know, successes? You know, hey, you know, Jesus was able to, to feed the people at the wedding. What do you got? You know, how would you like to be Jesus' brother going to the next wedding, Right? They're running out of wine again. All right? Jesus isn't there, so look at his brother. Man, was Jesus was here. Yeah, me too. You know? They heard about this stuff. They saw it. No doubt Mary told them about the angelic visit and the miraculous birth. They heard Jesus' message firsthand. They, or at least some of them, must have remembered the time Jesus was left behind and they found him in the temple teaching everyone as a young boy. And so they saw so many things, yet for some reason they didn't believe in him. Now, I don't pretend to know all of why they didn't believe. Some of it is because faith is indeed a gift. But I think one possibility could be jealousy. They wanted attention, affirmation, acceptance, yet Jesus was the focal point. And yet, isn't that the same reason why we often forget to bring glory to God? Because we are the ones who are looking for acceptance, for affirmation, for approval from other people. At this this time, what Hebrews is saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, is don't drift away. Don't drift away from what you've heard. The gospel message, which was made possible by the incarnation, which is we start to think about the incarnation. We see that it brought great glory to Jesus Christ. So make that your life goal. Your life goes, some of you are younger, some of you are in high school, some of you are looking into college, and some of you are in college or whatever, you're at that age, and you're thinking about what you want to do with your life, and people are always asking you that. What are you going to do with your life? And you want to say, I don't know, leave me alone. But nonetheless here, when you think about that answer, you should have the idea of bringing glory to God somehow in there. Some of you want to get married, and some of you are married, and some of you are, are working on your marriage. Your marriage should have a purpose of bringing glory to Jesus Christ. You see, if that is our goal, it then dictates how we have our marriage. It dictates how we become parents. It dictates how we, we work at our jobs and things like that, if glory to God is our goal. You see, we drift away from the incarnation when we, when we become self-centered in our thinking. When we are most concerned with our wants and our desires and what we feel like we deserve, rather than the glory of Jesus Christ, we drift away. And he's saying, Don't drift away from this. Don't do it. It leads to destruction. Go back to the things that you've heard and the reason why he came and the importance of it. Jesus unjustly suffered and died as part of his incarnation. He deserves glory. Not you, you don't deserve glory. And I don't definitely deserve glory. Jesus deserves the glory. So please, this morning, as you're considering your fellowship of Jesus Christ, don't drift away from the ultimate purpose of the incarnation, and that was to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And so you frame your life as you live your life. It really should be about how can we bring glory to God. I have one other thing I want to remind you of this morning, one reality of the incarnation that I'd like to remind you of that I think is very important, and that is this. The incarnation provides hope and help for you. Don't drift away from that. I want you to look in Hebrews chapter 2 again. It says in verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14, "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so we see in verse 14, first of all, that he destroyed the devil. Jesus destroyed the devil through the work of the incarnation, okay? And so he does this, and so that should give you hope, and that should give you help. And we should always run to Jesus for this help and hope that is made possible because Jesus became a man, and he was a perfect man. You see, if Jesus had not lived a perfect life, if he was born as a baby and he lived and yet did not live a perfect life, then his death would have mean have no meaning and no influence upon us. Yet it is precisely because he lived the life that Adam did not live and he lived the life that you and I could not live, that perfect life of obedience, that then his death on the cross then gives us hope and gives us help. And so he's gone through what you've gone through. He's experienced what you've experienced, and yet he has destroyed the work of the devil. We don't have to fear the enemy any longer because the Bible's very clear that he destroyed the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Secondly, he delivered humanity. Did you see that in verse 15? And he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you notice that? That we were destined to, you and I were destined to not just a lifetime, but yea, even an eternity of slavery. This is what Hebrews is saying. You and I were destined to slavery. Yet, because of the incarnate work of Jesus Christ, because he lived as a perfect human and he died an unjust death, we are delivered from that slavery. If you want to read more about that, Romans chapter 6 is a great chapter to read about this deliverance from slavery. But I want you to look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, who is the offspring of Abraham? Well, anyone who's in Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3, according to the book of Romans, anyone who identifies in Christ and who Christ is saved, who becomes part of Christ, they are Abraham's offspring. So that's you, that's me, if we're followers of Jesus Christ. But what astounded me as I was studying this text was when verse 16 says, for surely it wasn't angels that he came to help. It wasn't angels. Have you ever thought about that? Angels are more powerful than us. Angels have abilities that we do not have. And it's not our purpose to study about angels this morning. But by way of reminder, they, they uh, often are used by God to deliver messages. We, we understand that they uh, protect Uh, people at times. We understand that they uh, have a work where they are uh, keeping forces at bay. And so we know that they're very powerful and they have abilities that you and I do not have because they're they're a different creation than humanity. When were they created? They were created somewhere uh, in the creation week uh, that we read about in Genesis and yet before uh, when when Adam and Eve fell. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about the, t- the time when they were created. It just kind of assumes their presence and that they were created and part of God's created order. But yet they have abilities that you and I do not have. And yet, he says, for surely it is not angels that he helps. If God was looking to amass an army, he probably would want to get the strongest of the strong. And yet, for the angels who chose to follow Satan... There was no redemptive plan offered. None. They fell. They followed Lucifer, their other angel. And God says, you're done. That's it. Jude tells us that. Second Peter tells us that. That when they fell... They, were just, they went straight to uh, an eternity, a destiny to judgment. And you remember in the story when Jesus was healing the demoniac and he cast the demons out of him? They went into the, the swine. Do you remember that? Do you remember why they went into the, the pigs and then they ran into the sea? Do you, remember why, what, do you remember what the demons were saying to them? The demons were saying, please do not put us in the abyss. They knew their eternal destiny. They knew that they have just judgment to look forward to and that is it. They knew there's no hope of redemption. None at all. So that's why they said, let us, let us at least go into the pigs and so we don't have to go to our eternal destiny right now. And Jude and Peter remind us that one day they will have eternal judgment. So as I'm thinking about this and we're going to talk more about this tonight a little bit more, God's justice is not called into question when there is no help offered. To The angels, the word help there is interesting. It has the idea of taking the hand of, if, if you would read and do a word study, you'd come to chapter 8 and verse 9 to the same book here of Hebrews, you would find out that it's in the same reference to of how God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of their slavery and out of their bondages that he took them by the hand and led them out. And here he says, for surely it is not the angels that he helps. It's not the angel that takes by the hand and lovingly leads and guides and p- provides redemption for. It is for us. The incarnation, the work of the incarnation means that there is hope for you. There's no hope for those fallen angels. There's no help for those fallen angels, but there is hope and help for you. So even if you have a terrible life of suffering on this earth, yet have redemption for eternity made available and inclusion into the very family of God made possible, isn't that better than how God dealt with the angels who fell? And so because we have redemption available to us, we should bring glory to God. And we should remember that this is the reason why we're here, is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And I can't drift away from that fact that the angels don't have this help. The angels don't have this, this uh, hope offered to him, the ones who fell, but yet we do. And so we need to understand that in part of doing that and how he did that is he became a merciful and faithful high priest. Look at Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It was required, not because God was required to save sinners. No. What it means when it says he had to do this was once it was determined that they would offer, that the eternal Godhead would offer redemption, would offer forgiveness, and offer an inclusion into the family of God to humanity and to humans, it, the only way that that was going to happen was for Jesus to become a man, live a life of perfect obedience, die an unjust death, so So his righteousness then could be put on our account if we believe in him. That's the only way that it would happen. There's no other way. And so the incarnate work, the perfect work of Jesus Christ on this earth brings hope and help to us. And he became a merciful and faithful high priest there. It's what it says in verse 17 to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I've told you this before. That word propitiation is a very packed theological word, it's beautiful. It basically means that God's wrath has been satisfied. Because God's holy. And so when there is sin, he has to deal with that. His holiness demands that he has to judge sin. And so when he does that, there has to be wrath that is poured out upon that, that, that person or whatever it is. And so Jesus steps in the gap there between you and me. And he takes that. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, then that wrath of God has been satisfied at the cross. And we don't have to worry about God being wrathful with us any longer. Because Jesus took that wrath. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by the work on the cross. And it's a beautiful work of the merciful and faithful high priest. But I want you to see this. It says this in verse 18, and I'll bring this to a close here. It says this For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted, who are being tempted. You see that? Who are being tempted, present tense, So he knows how you feel. Chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16 talk about the same thing, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, and yet he understands he was tempted as we are, yet without sin, so we can go confidently to him. And so we understand that Jesus understands how you feel. This is one of the beautiful things of the incarnation, is that he's not a lofty God that doesn't understand humans. He understands what you're going through. He understands how you feel. You see, trials have a, a, an isolating effect on them. We feel like we're all alone. We feel like there's no one else that can understand what we're going through, what we're dealing with. And, and even if we know of other people that have the similar situation that we have, it's just not the same, right? Because there's different circumstances around it. And so we feel very isolated. But Jesus here, we're told, he understands. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So he understands rejection. He gets it. He experienced it. He understands exhaustion. He experienced it. He understands hunger. He knows what it's like to be mistreated. He understands having motives misdiagnosed and people assuming the worst of him. He understands a ruined reputation. He knows what it's like to have to trust God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He understands loneliness. He knows what it's like to be poor and he understands the temptations to sin. Yet he went through all those without sin for the reason that then we could run to him and we can say, you know how I'm feeling right now. You know the sense of failure that I have in my soul right now. And you know, you know how I'm feeling right now. And a pleading with you because the incarnate work that you did that you would minister to me you've said you're not ashamed to call me a brother you've said you're not ashamed to call me a sister and so my brother i need help from you the one who has gone before the one who has done this and done this in my place please help me help me in this moment and the bible teaches us that he will never leave you or forsake you you see this is the incarnation and don't drift away from this particularly this Christmas season, don't drift away. Don't drift away from the hope and help found only in Jesus Christ. And often that's when we're starting to avoid other people, and we're starting to avoid talking with other people. I experience this all the time. I know what it's like in my soul when my soul begins to drift, because one of the first things is, is I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm battling something in my soul, and the last thing I want is somebody to ask me how you doing?" because I'm just going to say "I'm fine." and I'm not going to talk about it. And when I'm not willing to open up to people and go to people and ask for prayer and ask for help, and I'm not willing to do that for other people, and I avoid people because I just don't want to deal with their stuff because I got too much of my own stuff to deal with, I know I'm beginning to drift. And I go back to Hebrews here, and I was so thankful that the Lord directed me to this passage, because I need to go back and say, look, I can't drift away. Because remember that illustration of my dad, I'm fishing, there's the lighthouse, there's the Coast Guard station, I looked down, and it didn't seem like any time it all had passed, and I was way farther, way farther. So don't drift. Don't drift away from the hope and help found only in Jesus Christ, because there are great dangers in drifting. And in my conclusion, now I'm going to share these three very quickly with you. There's dangers of drifting. Drifting is a dangerous thing. We have to row the boat in order to not drift away from the course set before us. And we're not designed to row the boat alone. I, I was going to make you know, this big elaborate illustration, and I knew I'd be running out of time, so I didn't. I cut it, but I'll just say it this way. I remember as a kid watching the movie Ben-Hur. Have you ever seen the movie, Ben-Hur? Okay, a few of you have. The rest of you, just play along like you know what I'm talking about. So if you know anything about Ben-Hur, the only thing I know about it is that there's two scenes, okay, that come to my mind, okay? The chariot race scene and the battle in the boat scene, right? Okay, I don't know anything else about the movie. I watched it a long time ago, but I know it's a great storyline and all that. Anyway, so battle in the boat scene. You remember that? There's a guy, he's beating a drum. And the people start rowing. And the, the captain, whoever he was, comes down and he's like, you know, battle speed. And they start rowing faster, and he's like, attack speed. Boom, 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 boom. They're rowing faster and faster, faster. And then he's like, ramming speed. And they're, like, dur, dur, dur. And they're just rowing, 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 rowing. And uh, if anyone's watching online without the sound right now, they're wondering, what is that guy doing up there? But anyway, the point is, is that they're rowing really, 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 really hard, right? And the point is, they've got to row together. That's the reason why the guy's beating the drum, right? You know, is to keep time, you know, in competitions, and rowing competitions, in the Olympics, there's someone who sits in the front of the boat, and their only job is to yell out and uh, keeping time so that everyone else is rowing in sync, right? We could say, well, man, give that person an oar. They got the easy job. They sit in the front of the boat and just yell at everyone else. That's the easy job. Well, no, their job is super important because they got to keep time because guess what happens? If one side rows at a different speed than the other side or whatever the case may be, you're just not going to go straight, right? You get this. You know, we're told that we don't drift. We're told that we got to fight against the culture, the currents of culture and the winds of false doctrine. And we got to, we got to fight against, there's a great enemy of the sea of life, the Kraken, if you will, called the devil that is trying to destroy us. And we got to fight against this. But here's the thing you can't do it alone. You can't. You got to row together. And then I view my job as a pastor a lot of times as yelling out. I'm sitting there just yelling and yelling. And it's not because I like yelling at you. It's not because I don't like grabbing an oar and I do, I'm thinking I'm above rowing the boat. No, because I'm rowing as well, but I'm yelling. And I'm saying that I think leadership in the church, we're trying to say, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. And right now I'm saying, don't drift. Don't drift. Don't drift. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Work together. Work together. Love together. Love together. Love Jesus. Follow Jesus. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. And I'm going to keep saying it until I die. Because Jesus is worth it. Because he deserves all the glory. And I know Christmas time is so easy to get distracted. But here's the thing. I'm making a point of this because drifting affects us far more than we realize. It causes us so much more harm than we realize. Our soul begins to to shrivel up. Don't drift. And then it also causes other people more harm than we realize. Because guess what happens? In the story of the boat pulling, everyone pulling their oar and everything, if one guy says, I'm done, what does that do to everyone else? they got to keep going. And then a lot of times what they do is like, you know, the Bible says that we go after people. And we go after them and we try to bring them back. And so the, you know, now you're trying to row and you're trying to bring someone back at the same time. We're together causes much more harm than, to other people than we realize when we just drift away and we don't care anymore. So don't ever fall, fall into the trap of believing the lie the enemy is gonna say is that your spiritual life doesn't affect other people, that it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you wanna do because that's a lie. It affects so many people. And it robs, finally. It robs the glory that Jesus so richly deserves. It robs the glory that he deserves. So, row the boat. Don't drift. Don't drift away from what you know about the Christmas story, about the incarnate work of Jesus Christ. Don't drift away from it. Because there's dangers associated with it. But above all, if we do work hard at following Christ, he gets glory. And that's what it's about. He gets, cool. it's not about our church becoming an awesome church or, or, or reputations or anything. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus getting the glory that he deserves. He died to save your soul. He deserves us to follow him. Well, let's pray. Father, it's been a joy to think through how, how much you deserve glory and honor. And I, I, I apologize. God, I mean, you know my heart. You know that there are so many times where I'm not concerned about your glory. And so I publicly, in front of the, my friends and my brothers and sisters here, I publicly ask you to forgive me, and I say that I, I just want you to cause me to stop any type of drifting that may be happening in my life. I pray this for them who are listening here this morning. Father, please, may we not drift. May we follow you and give you all the glory that you deserve. May we run to you for help and hope that is made possible because you became a man. May we find hope and help even here at the table this morning. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.